Have you made an honest review? Jump onto fifthwrist.com and read real takes by real owners about their watches. And of course, get involved and write about what's on your wrist. Fifthwrist.com is your independent space to talk watches. Welcome to the Independent Thinking Show for Fifth Wrist Radio. This is a place dedicated to showcasing the great people doing interesting things in the world of horology. My name is Roman and with me is my friend and co-host Adam from Medium Watch. Hey Adam, good to see you again. Good to see you. How's things? Things are well, things are well. I have uh, some exciting watches and some exciting people with us today and uh, the people of course being the more exciting one than the watches, but uh, nonetheless both... <laughs> are awesome and uh, really excited for this interview. Yeah, my oh my, what an episode we have ahead. Today, we have an absolute privilege and pleasure to have two special guests with us. Uh, we've got Madame Evelyn Genta and Alexia Genta with us. And obviously, the topic of our discussion will be the late legendary watch designer, Mr. Gerald Genta, uh, who was Madame Genta's husband and Alexia's father. Um, now, of course, Gerald Genta needs no introduction to our listeners, but it is worth pausing to properly introduce Madame Genta and Alexia. Whew, I've got to take a big breath now. Um, so Her Excellency Madame Evelyn Genta is Monaco's ambassador to the United Kingdom and the Republic of Kazakhstan. Pertinently to the watch discussions uh, between 1993 and 1999, Evelyn ran the eponymous Gerald Genta brand with her husband, the artistic visionary and watch designer Gerald Genta, who's world famous and needs no introduction. Uh, Evelyn herself managed the company's operations, which included over 250 employees and two factories. Uh, in 1999, the Genta family sold the company to the Hourglass Group and the company is now part of the Bulgari family. Now, more recently, and we'll get into that a bit later, uh, Evelyn Genta founded the Gerald Genta Heritage Association to pay tribute to Gerald's work and support young and up-and-coming watch designers, which is a wonderful initiative indeed. Alexia, Gerald's daughter, is herself a successful entrepreneur, being a founder and director of two companies, Alexia's Alterations and Geraldine London. With both these amazing ladies being so busy, we are very grateful they could find the time to speak to us. So without further ado, uh, welcome to Fifth Wrist Radio, Madame Gentry and Alexia. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having us. We are both huge fans of both Gerald Genta's work in terms of his horological output, but also more importantly, what he represented to the independent watchmaking scene in terms of leading the way in late 90s and early 2000s about showing that such a thing is possible, that you could be a visionary designer with strong forward-facing design sense and have a hugely successful concern um, in terms of reaching clients worldwide and shaping watch fashions for generations to come. So huge, huge honor for us to have you on the show. Thank you. Now, before we kick off, we do a very quick, pretty informal thing. We do a wrist check and a drink check. Now, we should actually do a location check as well, because it is one of those rare things where we have multiple points of the compass being involved. So maybe, Adam, I'll, I'll throw to you. Tell us where you are. Tell us what's on the wrist and if there's anything in the glass. So I'm in the Boston area. And of course, what would be better than having one Genta? Well, in honor of having two Gentas in the show, I have two Gentas in the wrist. First, I've got my Gerald Genta by Retro, which is a basically double by retrograde watch. It's got a jump hour hour and then a retrograde minutes and a retrograde date. And then that watch was so exciting, I had to get a second thing. Of this family, so I've got my <laughs> Gerald Genta, uh, a, a sub seconds, a retro seconds, excuse me, a retro second. So it's got a retrograde uh, seconds hand that goes back and forth twice a minute. And the reason why I wanted to bring these two special Gerald Genta watches with me, even though I've got watches that were designed by Genta for other brands, is I wanted to bring something that, in a way, is, is part of the work of Ambassador Genta. Uh, because she was so responsible for helping bring these wonderful Gerald Genta brand watches to the market. Uh, beyond the watches, I've got uh, a nice Americano. It is eight in the morning. I love doing podcasts with Adam. He's always very sensible. 
is always very sensible, particularly when <laughs> beverage choice wise. That's very good. The watches are fantastic as well. Of so course. Roman, uh, what do you have? All right. So I've debated long and hard. So the watch I have on my wrist is, uh, or I've just taken it off actually, is a is my ultimately my favorite Gerald Genta watch, uh, and I'm sure we can argue about that. So I have a retro. Uh, it's a uh, sorry, my camera is pretty terrible. It's a it's a white dial retro with um, with loomed hand and indicators. Um, and to me, that watch will always be my favorite um, Gerald Genta design. Um, not his most complicated, um, but it, it just sings on so many levels. Uh, it's kind of simplicity done beautifully in an innovative way and done when not many companies were doing retrograde displays at all. So... And Adam and I have had multiple discussions about retro watches and bi-retro watches. Adam likes the bi-retro. I've owned both as well. And, you know, he, he hasn't swayed me yet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly right. Um, so, that, so that's the watch stuff done. Um, Beverage-wise, it's time in Melbourne, Australia, so it's just after 10 p.m. here. Now, typically my drink for the podcast is a gin and tonic. But that wasn't going to cut the mustard. So I thought, what would be an appropriate Gerald Genta <laughs> drink? And I found a cocktail, which I think will work quite well. Uh, it's a Sharpie moustache. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> had that. That's brilliant. What's in it? Uh, so it, it has rye whiskey. Uh, it has dry gin, so which is why I like it. So And it has some Amaro Meletti bitters. So it's very, very good. Drinks really well. It's very potent. So if I start sort of listing to the side, just do a shout or something and I'll perk right up. But it's a Sharpie mustache uh, cocktail, which I thought was just going to be the most appropriate thing I could find. <laughs> so that's me. And the Master Agenda, uh, what do you have? Um, so I have um, Scrooge. Oh, nice. Ah, oh, very good. Oh, wow. I don't think I've seen one of those. No, you haven't seen because Gerald um, uh, made that one for me because I was running the factory and he used to call me the banker because I was the one who always said <laughs> we didn't have the money to do this and we didn't have the money to do that. So uh, when he made the fantasy collection, he made me the Scrooge and it, it, it's really quite extraordinary. Oh, that's lovely. And I'm sorry, as far as drink, I'm coming out of a jubilee weekend, where, so we've had a lot of champagne, uh, so I'm only having a glass of water. Sorry to be boring, but I, this is it. This is four days of celebrations for us. Oh, of course, indeed. Well, yes, congrats. We send our felicitations from across the, the, across the ocean. <laughs> And what about you, Alexi? You're you're in France, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So I I am wearing actually one of my favorite watches that I got completely out of luck. Uh, it was designed in the seventies, and it's uh, Mickey Mouse that uh, that Dad designed. I think there were only a hundred, am I right, with the Hong Kong uh, limited edition? It was designed a bit later than that, but uh, that's fine. In the eighties. In the 80s, my apologies, <laughs> and uh, and so they actually, my mum and dad sold all of that the entire collection uh, of limited edition watches, and I always always loved it. And one day we were walking down uh, a street in Monaco, and we just walked past a secondhand uh, watch shop. And one of those watches was in there, and mom told me, "Okay, if you fit in that watch." It's yours because obviously the bracelets were so small being for, you know, the Hong Kong market. And so I think I just about managed to squeeze inside that bracelet and <laughs> that, that watch was mine. So it's definitely a very special watch for me. Oh, it's like a Cinderella story, isn't it? It's like a glass slipper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's very, that's, yeah. that's, that, that's, a, that's a fairy tale, both finding the watch in the window, but also then having to go through the fitting process. That, that's marvellous. It must have been fate to see it in the window, for sure, for sure. <laughs> drink check. Oh, drink check. I'm pregnant, so this just is. water. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, oh, congratulations. And, Eveline, you knew, right, this is not news for you because I'd hate for this to be the forum where you find <laughs> out. It's a shock. I'm thrilled beyond thrilled. So that's... Will that be the first grandchild? Second. In the family? Oh, congratulations. Oh, that's wonderful news. Congratulations to you both, really. Thank you. So uh, 
We already got into it a bit with the comment about Scrooge, but can you tell us a bit more about what was Gerald like as a person? Because you're his family. Gerald as a person was, I mean, there would be so much to say about him because he was quite extraordinary. And I think, I'm, I'm not going to go very much into that, but he was an artist. And that, in a way, uh, would describe him. So I'm not going to go into all that it meant, but he was your typical artist. But what he had as well was that this incredible way of always looking forward, which goes with um, the fact that he was always advanced, whether in his designs, but in his life. He liked new music, he liked new technology, he liked new new cars. Uh, he, he had this ability to never, never look back, which meant that I, even when the years went past, you still felt that age didn't matter because he was always looking forward and it happened in his watches as well. He was not interested in collecting watches. This is why very often I have to buy back some because he was interested. They were made, they were done, finished, let's move forward. And that was very, very much, I would say, a very strong straight of his temperament. Yeah, he was definitely really open-minded and and always wanted to, yeah, definitely really forward-thinking. I remember he was listening to the music I was listening to when I was 12, 13. So he got into, you know, rap music and all sorts. It was just very surprising uh, to just walk wow. past his, you know, his painter's studio and to listen to the music he was listening to. So, um, Yeah. <laughs> Now, I would imagine, I mean, I don't have artists in the family, but I would imagine it wouldn't, wouldn't be the, an artist, particularly a half Italian artist, wouldn't be the easiest person to live with, I would imagine, let alone having as a father. But yeah. I think you've said it all because on top of it, you're talking of half Italian. And I would say yes. the Italian part in his temperament was certainly stronger than the Swiss part, I would say, <laughs> which, <laughs> which accounts for the creative part, but which accounts also for the fiery temperament, which is really exciting. It was certainly never, ever dull, but it did make for some sometimes difficult moments because he was very fiery, very honest. He said what he thought. And, you know, I think that's where I learned diplomacy. That you I was going to say. <laughs> that's right. Yes, I was going to say that. That's right. But yeah. that made him an incredible human being. No, de definitely. And also I would add that he was really observant. Like he would note, and, and it was fantastic. So for example, we'd walk into a beautiful building or something and he would notice a detail that none of us would notice. Or I, I, I remember once he, he, a fly landed on the table one summer and he said, look at how beautiful its eyes were. And I just thought, you know, as a grumpy teenager, I thought that was just such a weird <laughs> statement. Um, but then on the negative side, on that side, he would also notice flaws around him and that used to drive me crazy on a daily basis it was like oh we need to fix this and we need you know a poor mom had to had to had to deal with that so he, just how crazy observant and perfectionist he was i believe was uh, another side but he wasn't wrong to be fair <laughs> no he had a good eye absolutely and when it came to watches when you were running uh, the, the brand I would imagine he would choose the models that would go into production. I, I, I can't see that being a collaborative consultation. I, I can see him saying, we're making this, make it happen. It was never collaborative in the sense, because otherwise I don't think I would have been married very long. I think I knew where the boundaries were. He knew the models. He knew what was going to be right. And I always trusted him 100% and never never said, oh, why don't you do it like this, why don't you do it like that, because I know he knew exactly what should be done. In his mind, he could always be seen the finished watch, you know. So my job started after, once he decided what we did, how it was going to look like, my job was to make sure it was produced, sold, and preferably paid. Yeah. Preferably. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh... One of the things I've heard mentioned in prior interviews is that uh, Gerald did not come from royalty, uh, to say the least. He actually had a very difficult upbringing. How did that influence his career and him as a person? This, this transition from a life of, of 
sounds like some hardship to one that was more uh, in gilded circles. When Gerald really talked to you about his childhood, to me, who comes from a much more easy background, he felt it was an eye-opener. It was really, there was something about slightly like Dickens-like. They were mm. not just poor. They were very, very poor. And it's just like the circumstances were so hard. First of all, they had no money. But also remember the war in Switzerland, the war, worldwide war. Gerald's dad was Italian. His mom was Swiss. In those days, now we're going back to you know those years, uh, the Swiss agreed that his mom and her children would stay in Switzerland, but his father had to leave because Italy was on the other side of the, the wall, right? So because they didn't want to break up the family, when he was seven or eight, he had to leave Switzerland and go and live with his father, mother, and two siblings in Torino. Now, they mm. didn't speak Italian. They had no job. And he says that they were so poor that he, he, he always had that sentence. He remembered the smell of poverty. But I really think that he felt it deep, deep down. And then it was still very hard because then the war was over, so they went back to Switzerland. But his dad was doing little odd jobs. His mom went blind. He had to find jobs to do to help the family. He was working when he was 14 years old. He was bringing, you know, bringing parcels one way or the other or being an usher in a cinema or whatever. So I think really what he has achieved um, is, is an incredible, incredible um, tribute to his talent, not only his talent, but his character, because some people would have been crushed by that. Instead, he, he, I think it gave him that, that sort of rage, that sort of anger to, to, to get better and to get to the good places he got to. Hmm. And did, did he have to face sort of prejudice in Switzerland being half Italian? Did that kind of, you know, did that put extra barriers in his career? Believe it or not, when he told me that, I found it difficult to believe because I I come from a late, we had quite an large gap. So for me, that that thing doesn't exist, that you are because you are this or you're that, you know. But Mm. yes, he said that uh, Italians in the school, his teachers would uh, say, um, they would call him Piaf, which was a, which was a disparagery term to mm. Italians, and say, "Go and sit at the at the end of the class." Which to me, again, has never had to go any through anything like mm. this. It was an eye opener. So I really, really think he had it very, very hard. Yeah, I mean, it, it's incredible the, the you know the 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 barriers that he overcame uh, where he started to where he came. It's a you know, in some ways, it's a, it's a very difficult but inspirational stories of really overcoming where you come from. You know, to with the sheer you know force of your personality and will to get. Yes, you know, it is, and uh, and he wasn't given a helping hand along. You know, I really have to say he did it by himself because all the way through it was difficult when he started in the watch business. Nobody opened doors to him when he wanted to do his own brand. It wasn't easy either. So I think, you know, it has been quite a journey. And when I look back, I mean, I take my hat off to him. Not easy at all. Mm. One of the special things about Switzerland is it has areas that are more Italian, more German, more French. Did he spend part of his life in the kind of more southern uh, Ticino Italian region or, or is he more... Elsewhere, where only, did he physically only live? Geneva. Geneva. Only Geneva. He was born in Geneva. His mother, his mother was actually Swiss German, but had moved to Geneva, and uh, mm-hmm. so um, always, always Geneva. And Jean didn't even speak Italian. Hmm. You know. Oh wow! That definitely makes for a more challenging life. Um, so on that note, is there anything else important about Gerald Genta, the man, that the world doesn't know but should? Because so much has been said and written about him, but there still must be things that are important for us all to know that aren't on the record. What do you think, Alexia? What should they know? 
Well, I know, I know your answer about being a, a Renaissance man. Yes, I, I think he, he wanted, again, going back to his childhood where he'd been missing education, he, he wanted to learn. He was, he was constantly hungry for things. And I think all his life, as I say, he was a Renaissance man because he, wanted, he learned about painting. Remember, he doesn't come from a family who took him to museums. He learned by himself. Mm. Learned about uh, medicine. He was interested in uh, politics. He was interested. He had that very, very uh, vivid mind, and it was always like if he was trying to catch up, you know. Mm. So that gave him a very rounded knowledge and appreciation of uh, the world he lived in. Of course, obviously, much more interested always in the artistic, archi architecture, and nature very much, but. He, he felt he was always catching up to what he had been missing. That's really interesting. Yeah. I don't know if that's, if that's also important, but I think to add to that, on the other side, dad was very much a child in his behavior. So he was really like, I grew up, okay, he was my father, but it was more like my my friends because he, we were really he was just really a kid and not just with me but he just was so so young at heart and so yes he accumulated that knowledge and he was interested in the world but he looked at it from almost such a uh i don't know if naive but just just like a child discovers things for the first time you know and so he always um, trusted his instinct, and I think that really fed into his art and his and his designs. This sort of uh, childish uh, reactions or uh, innocent reactions to what's around him in the world, which was quite undermining when you want to raise your child and teach her discipline, because he would you could be sure that he would unravel everything I had told her yeah. not to do. You know, you could be sure that he would go, "Come on," you know, and it's yeah. <laughs> so 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 um Evelyn so was Alexia and Gerald in trouble together at the same time for the same things they would be yes yes I have right. known them to go out to places I wouldn't have let them go and uh, I wasn't happy about it at all and you know but but that's what they did yeah <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, I think, as Adam was saying, you know, so much has been said about Gerald Gender, the, the artist, you know, the visionary. But I find, you know, particularly with independent watchmakers or watch designers or visionaries, getting to sort of the, you know, the kind of the what drove them is really wonderful for us to know, I think, you know, because I think that really helps to guide, to help us understand what what Gerald's guiding light if you like was i mean that voracious appetite for knowledge beauty art really interesting particularly the where he came from such a dark and you know dark beginning now i remember also reading i think it was his mother was losing her sight when he was quite young yeah, she became so. blind she became blind yes. so gerald would run home cook for her um, wow. You know, it's, it, it's really quite heartbreaking, and she died mm. quite young. It's it's really, really, Goodness. really difficult. Yeah, I, yeah, and you just sort of wonder whether you know Gerald's love for bright colours, particularly in his own art. You know, the painting, for example, that's behind you. It's very yeah. bright, very vivid, very visual. And I just, be, I mean, he, he really disliked. He really disliked dark. For instance, he didn't like buffet art because it's all lined right. with very thick, you know, sure. black line. Sure. Um, he he really loved Miro, of course, uh, because yes. he can have a lot of colors. He loved uh, he loved Chagall above everything Picasso because Picasso yes, was my, his god. Uh, but um, he never went for the dark the dark side and, and, and in his painting it's all colors it's always mm. colors and it sounds like he liked more abstract complex forms that are less geometric these yes. artists yes <laughs> yes he liked uh, in his paintings he liked to uh, soft shapes but you see if you look at his watches again he likes soft shape there's always a coherence um, uh, if you look at his 
octagon, okay, you have the royal oak, which has got quite sharp angles, I agree with you. But afterwards, look at our Argentas. They are always, the octagons are soft angles. Uh, to him, the watches had to be what he called anatomic, you know, they have to be worn uh, and, and be pleasant to, to touch. Mm. And I think these paintings, again, you have the, um, the influence of the, the jeweler, which he was as well, of the artist, of the watchmaker, of the painter with the color. Um, but but there's, there's, there's really coherence in, in all these words. Yeah, I think, but I think his paintings have been, they really evolved, right, Mom? Like, they started being really figurative. I mean, they, you know, it, we can see in the, in the very early days, way before I was born, where it was really a painting of, a, you know, an apple and things like that. So he really just started like that. But then as he became more and more confident and inspired and passionate about painting, which was, I think, his first love, really, Uh, it became more and more abstract and the soft shapes and the very bright colors than that mom uh, described. But he kept telling me that when he was about 22 or 23, one day he found himself on a, you know, on a trip, hiking trip, and he was in Saint-Tropez. And uh, obviously he looked at all this and he thought this is so beautiful and he looked at the sea and the sun and the colors and he thought, I'm not going back. I'm staying in the <laughs> South Pole, but then, of course, he had to work and go back. But it always is attraction to the South of France, to the colors, the sun. Mm. And in a way, it's, I'm quite happy we met, and uh, maybe I helped in getting this dream come true, because in the end, he could live in the South of France and enjoy the sea and the sun and the blue skies. So it all worked back to what he wanted. Well, they do say behind every great man is a greater woman actually making it all happen. And, Thank you, know, you. I like you. Well, I've been married for a long time, so I've I've been trained very well. <laughs> but but it is I mean but but it is very true. You know, I mean we're talking about artists, but you, when sort of thinking about your story and Gerald's story, it reminded me a little bit of you know the story of Van, Vincent Van Gogh. You know, the the artist, the artist himself was real. You know, I mean I'm not he's not exactly equivalent to Gerald, but you know, difficult life. But a lot of the work to actually publicize the names happened after, you know, by someone else. In, in Van Gogh's uh, case, it was, you know, the wife of his brother, Theo, um, yes. who really, you know, who really made it all happen, made sure that very similar to what you're doing now with the uh, Gerald Genta Heritage Association, making sure that the name is not forgotten and the proper play recognition is done. So there's all these echoes of artistic lives intersecting. It's a really, really interesting thing. And speaking of echoes... So you've mentioned there are multiple periods of his art and how it evolved to become more and more abstract. Are there periods of his watch designs that somehow mirror that artistic progression or did the two progressions happen somewhat independently of each other? No, I think they happen independently because for a long time, Gerald really had not enough time to paint. He never stopped painting, mm. but until he actually sold the company most of his work. Remember, Gerald was a creator of prototypes. We were making a lot of one-off watches and our clients worldwide required one-off watches. So a lot of his time was taken up with designing watches. His art could only evolve when he had a lot of time to let it evolve, you see. So I don't think that they are running parallel. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So one uh, famous one-off watch that's been mentioned in a prior podcast is a watch that he made for you called the Urchin, which yes. uh, you mentioned the Urchin was your favorite watch of his, but it's, it's really a special watch because it was made as a gift. Yes. Uh, unfortunately for the rest of us, we can't buy the Urchin because only one was made. <laughs> of the watches <laughs> that are available to the general public in, in some volume, what's your favorite and why? Uh, it was called, it's a series called The Golden Gold. And if you look it up, you will see that it's a line of watches that was uh, made as men, uh, ladies, and complication. It is an octagonal one. It's sort of the same shape as what I am wearing now. And the idea was that, again, when you, the bezel clips on the, on the, 
on the bed, reminding a little bit of the Wallach, which also, you know, it's one against the other, but in a much softer shape. And that watch worked very, very well uh, for men and for women. And that line we sold quite a few with a beautiful bracelet. And it went from a simple two hands to a mini repeater, Cantien Perpetuel, and, and everything else. And I think that was what Jarl considered one of his most perfect lines. Probably if he had been an industrialist and not the artist he was, he would have stopped with this one and he would have <laughs> sold this one. And everybody, you know what I mean? Uh, sure. <laughs> but that was in his, in his temperament or anything. But that, to me, was something that could have been yet another of the best sellers you all know. <laughs> Interesting. Is uh, The two watches I have here both have this kind of coin-edged case that uh, is also a trademark of his. Um, is there a story about uh, what led him to... The coin-edge, what you may not know, is that he made many, many years back I don't have to date for my time for um, for Breguet. Of course, of course. So, because the prototypes of the Breguet, I can't tell you how many tens of years back were made by Gerald. So you see the history is already there. You Ooh. already see the side of the coins that he took up again for himself later. Oh wow! Oh, interesting. I, I, yeah, I never yeah, knew I'm that. That's that. that's very exciting news. Uh, see, this is why we need. We need a catalog <laughs> raisonnée or something, you know. We need. Oh, yeah, you're not the first person to talk to me about that. Yes. <laughs> See, I never thought my by retro had a, a tie to Breguet, but I guess there's a direct line from that coinage yes. and that prior work to uh, this crazy watch here. Wow. Another watch of Gerald's that I feel or doesn't get enough attention, at least in the at the moment, is the the Gafika, the bronze case watch. I so agree with you. I so, so agree with you. This was an incredible... The, the real story again, my God, I'm telling you all the real stories today. Um, uh, the, we got the gentleman from Cartier, Alain Dominique Perrin, who was a wonderful gentleman and very good friend of Gerald, rang him up and said, look, I've had these three hunters requiring a really complicated watch. And I said to them, go to Gentiles, the only guy crazy enough to do it for you. And so <laughs> these three guys came and they asked for so many specific. It had to be dark. They didn't say bronze, but Roger would thought about non-reflection, yeah. you know. Had to yeah. be dark. It had to have an alarm. It had to have the moon because the, the animals, you know, drink more and don't know full moon or not full moon. Had to have a dark <laughs> dial. Had to have a compass. Had to be waterproof. And it was such a headache if you think about it. Uh, mm. There were so many things. Mm. And Gerard came up with that watch um, which is called the Jeffica because the three hunters were called Geoffroy, Fisson, and Canali, and he took the two initials of the... Right. That's the only reason why he's called that. And it was an incredible success. Mm. And, and, and people have not known the real history of it. But the Jeffica Safari, and you know, today to find a Jeffica Safari in bronze is very difficult. They are... Mm. They, there don't come many around. No, I think my impression, because I, I am looking for one, that, that's, you know, so hopefully I'll find one before we release the podcast. That's that's always the <laughs> challenge. Um, but I think it's it's another example of, I think, Gerald's creative genius and kind of ability to go, you know, beyond it has to be steel, gold or, you know, platinum. Elephant skin. <laughs> that's right. But, you know, yeah. So it was, and it's, you know, we talk that, you know, there's certainly, currently there's a vogue for, bronze cased watches you know all the different amalgams and stuff but if we think but again he should have been a bestseller if he had been an industrialist going back to what i said before probably the jeffica safari would be another one of these very very well-known models but for him as always it was transient and he went on to the next (laughs) so so were you always trying were you trying to steer him towards you know let's pick a few commercial successes or was it just was it useless to even try he was just Galloping I mean, away. I wouldn't steer you. It would have been unfair, and uh, and it sure. was also very exciting to to service these clients all around the world to get to know them, to see what they loved, to create watches especially for their passion or their lives or their children. It it, it was a totally different 
way of doing the watch business. Mm. What proportion of the watches made were these bespoke one-off creations versus these more mass-produced watches like the ones I have? What was the volume of each? It's it's difficult because we never kept obviously records of anything typical. Uh, I would say that we made 1,500 to 2,000 watches a year. Uh, probably two thirds of that would have been the, the no, what I call the normal watches, the Jeffica's, the Golden yep. Gold, the, the, the regular retro, production. Yep. The rest was all, all one off, which meant wow. for the fact that's why we needed so many workers for mm. such small production because. To do that, you've got to be able to do it in-house, remember. You cannot, if you order cases for watches today or, or even then, you have to order 10,000. For us, we had to make one. So we needed that many people able to do the work in-house. Mm. And how, and what was the process for a client who wanted a bespoke piece? Did you know was was any person, any client welcome for a bespoke piece or did you have to be at a certain level or have a... But you know, history with, with with the brand or something. I would say it's more histories, more people we met. Sure. Mostly, they were heads of states. To be honest, to you, we worked a lot and a lot for heads of states. We would go one month to the Middle East and visit um, the Emirates, Saudi, Kuwait, Bahrain. Mm. The next month, we would go to the Far East and we would visit Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Brunei. Thailand, and little by little, the it went from head of state to famous people. Uh, we made watches for President Clinton. You know, little by little, that that world is small, and sure, all these watches were given to each other as presents, and then it became something important that they gave to somebody's birthday, the Argenta watch, and it just kept growing and and it was and it allowed us and to to meet extraordinary people and it allowed Gerald to make extraordinary pieces that if these people mm. hadn't existed he would never have been able financially to to make mm. wow so really uh, it was almost uh, a master's task you had to go around the world <laughs> and meet interesting people and uh, help bring their it's ideas into life great so life. When it was time for me to uh, get married, I worked with a jeweler to design our engagement ring and wedding rings and spec'd out all the pieces and said, here, this is my vague vision. We got out a pencil and took it from there and then ultimately to the metal. What was the process of making these bespoke creations? To what extent did he offer a suggestion to the head of state and to what extent did the head of state have an input in the process? It worked both ways. Um, sometimes we would get commissions, like a head of state would phone and say, look, uh, the French president is coming in a year, can you prepare something that would be appropriate? And then Jao would design and send the designs to the head of state and they might discuss it together. Uh, sometimes Gerald just decided that this would be good <laughs> for that person and just created the piece, wow. which was always a huge risk because I'm not just talking watches. He created automats he created, and, and would manufacture it because he thought that was fabulous and he wanted to manufacture it and we would bring it to the person. Wow. Uh, so it was, it was both ways. But of course, the more we worked for one special client, the, the easier it became to, to make things. If you, if you knew, for instance, he loved football, Gerard had a very important client in Italy who loved Torino, black and white colors. He then created little football um, uh, watches for him in the black and white, the Torino outfit, you know. Juventus, so the yeah, Juventus. Do, that's it. Oh, wow. So really it varied depending on the client's needs and some people had uh, particular things in mind. Uh, do you see still, Madame Jen? Do you still see those watches on wrists of people? Because you are now in the diplomatics. You know, you're, you're in yes, the kind of. Yes, I do. And people, some it can happen. And sometimes people will say, "Oh, can I show you what I have?" And the, oh, that's it wonderful. is so exciting. And to me, some pieces I remember exactly when they were made, how we sold them, and 
it, it, there's always a little story with them. Sure. Absolutely. Well, they bring people together, don't they? That's wonderful. That's really, I'm getting goosebumps here. That's lovely. <laughs> and seeing some on Chrono 24, I've noticed that some of them have initials on them in various places. That was one of Gerald's passion. He loved designing um, uh, logos. Uh, initials were like logos. And he created for, for so many head of states uh, logos. Some of them they kept using. So suddenly we saw they were arriving on other things and uh, that they had been used, which was nice. He, he loved doing that. He, he did a beautiful um, logo for, for his daughter and made a ring yeah. out of it as well. It's true. He really loved doing it. What did the logo look like? I don't know how, oh I don't know how to describe it, but actually, Mom, that's very kind that you said he did it for me, but it wasn't for me, though, was it? It was for a different client, and then, and then I said I loved it. And then, and then I got a ring out of it. I didn't get that much stuff. I do remember. Well played. It was for somebody. Well, you, 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 I did. I did try a lot. I did try. Um, I, I'll, you know, what? I'll send you a picture. It was very graphic, very modern, um, very also simple. You know, it wasn't with squiggly lines or like you know. It was mm. just and the and I he I don't know. He just made it also organic. I'll send you a picture of it. Thank you. Thank you. It is really interesting. I mean, you talk about his sort of graphic language, if you like, being the – one of the reasons that I love the retro watch that I have on my wrist is I actually taught my son to read the time. So I've got an eight-year-old, but when he was a bit younger – I taught him to read the time on a retro watch because it was very easy because mm. of the digital hour display. And then to to explain to him that, you know, an hour is 60 minutes, you can see, you know, when, you know, when the hand gets all, you know, it's a quarter of the way, half of the way. And it's, and as I was explaining it to my then four-year-old and seeing him instantly get it really kind of, kind of, I had a little bit of a, a light bulb moment, you know, Gerald Gender thought about this, you know, that or if he hadn't consciously thought about it, he intuitively understood good design and how that would translate across cultures, across time. You know, we're talking about his designs being future focused. It's just such a genius thing. And that's why that's why the retro is a real special place in my heart. And I'm sure my son will always will have some nice associations. I'm sure he's already put his he scratched his name in the back of it, I'm sure, with a little pencil or something. <laughs> I just better no, check you are so right. It's so funny you should say that because Gerard, when he designed the retrograde, I looked at it and I I looked at the design and the, I don't have the vision that my husband does and I, I I and he said you don't understand. This is a new way to read the time. So it's exactly what you're saying, and that was his obsession that this was a new way to read the time, and and that mm. hand hand bouncing back afterwards was quite useful for him to for his characters as well, because it gave life to the watch. When suddenly ah, that, yes. that character, which is, got, which is holding something and then the hand swings back or something, it then became very exciting for the Disney collection. But the basis of the retrograde was new way to read the time. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's what inspired the Disney collection. That's what did the jump hours. Um, he really made a lot of very complex watches. Uh, so there were these Grand Seigneuries, there were uh, the retrogrades, the jump hours, the quad retro. Are there any complications that he designed but that he never produced? Yes, uh, there is one here that he's been produced, which is tells, I'm not very good with that. I'm not technical, so I'm not going to go down this road, but it mm-hmm. tells a lot of, it's not a world time, but he's got a way of reading many different chimes. But I don't want to talk about something I don't understand so well. So you'd have to see the design. Ah, oh well. Well, uh, it sounds like it would be very, very fascinating. So the really other things that I've noticed is that some of his early classics, the Polar Router, the Nautilus, the Engineer, these are really oftentimes time watches or time and date watches, whereas... If we look at some of his later works, they were much, much more complex. Is there a reason that there was this of drift towards greater complexity and more grand complications? Or yeah, I think I think he always liked complications. Remember, Gerald knew about the history of watches very well. Uh, when he did uh, the Royal Oak or the Nautilus, 
or the engineer, you're talking about orders that are made for sports watches. So it was in those days you didn't do complication in steel watches anyway. And remember, complication had gone out of fashion. We are now coming into the 70s. We are with the quartz. We're with the panic with the Japanese industry, which is going to kill the Swiss watch industry and everything else. Then he started his own watches. And as soon, really, as he had enough money to make his first collection, which consisted of six watches, so there's not a big collection, okay, he made perpetual calendars. People mm. were not making perpetual calendars in those days. It had existed before, of course, but they were not. So he made these six uh, perpetual calendars, launched them on the Italian market with an, uh, um, an advertising which said, Per chi vuole la luna, for who wants the moon, you know, who wants. <laughs> Beautiful. And, yeah. um, but again, very different perpetual calendar that is easily, easily recognized because moon in gold, sky in lapis lazuli, not painted like in everybody else's. And then as he got a bit more money and as he became a bit more successful, he, remember we were doing everything in-house, he was able to hire more and more skilled watchmakers till he got a little factory in the Brassure and, the, and then he made the military beaters and then everybody started making the military beaters. Mm-hmm. He was already on the, on, on the Grand Complication and the Grand Sonnery. And if you see, they were always a few years behind uh, and the retrograde. So it, it's actually quite amusing to see how he led all of, the, all of that and uh, how he brought the Swiss watch industry to the pinnacle of complication where it was from, from where it started 30 years before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's always, always ahead. They're, they're very true from retrogrades onwards. How do, what do you think he would make of the proliferation of, shall we say, Gerald Denter design adjacent yeah watches from other brands. I'm not sure how to put it diplomatically. See, that's why you do diplomacy and I do a podcast. <laughs> but- I, I think he would be one one way amused and pleased, another way a bit irritated like he used to be by saying, <laughs> for goodness sake, make other, be original, stop looking at the right. Swiss watch industry book and create so, yes, of course, he would be a bit flattered because really you can see so many children and grandchildren of his designs in the watch. Uh, <laughs> sure. But he would tell the people, the, the people he liked, come on, uh, be a bit adventurous, do something else. Mm. No, I think we're all crying for a bit of originality. There's, there's, there's always a shortage of, of that. Um, actually, that made me think, was... He did, did. Gerald maintain sort of friend friendly relations with other Swiss manufacturers or other independent makers. You know, did they collaborate on stuff, or was Gerald very much just I'm doing my own thing, and if you follow, that's fine. If you don't, I don't care. I feel like Max Buser and friends with all his friends that he, he uh, built stuff. He had with. friends, but he wasn't collaborating. I think he was always doing his own thing. My husband did not have it in him to collaborating so far that he, he had to be doing his own thing by himself. It's not being unkind. It's just the way he was. He, it would have driven him mad. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So there's recently been a lot of attention given some of these older designs, some made, some not, uh, as a result of the auctions. Are there any results in the auctions that surprised you? And where do you think the market for these watches will go in the years ahead? Um with the auctions, my my choice of the design, obviously you have the Warlord and Nautilus, everybody knows about those, but you saw that I chose a wide range because my mm. point to show how versatile it was, Jacques did incredible ladies' watches. Incredible. Mm. People do not know. To him, the ladies' watches was a bit the holy grail. He says every brand is looking for a ladies' watch and they're always <laughs> doing small men's watches. Yes, and very true. Uh, Even ladies' now. watches yeah. should be ladies' watches. They shouldn't be small men's. So I showed that he could make ladies' watches. I showed that he could make simple sports watches. I showed he could go absolutely crazy and make big jewelry watches, clocks, objects, 
forks, knives, everything else. So the choice of the design was to be as encompassing as possible. And what surprised me was, uh, first of all, that all the designs were interesting to the people. Of course, the, 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 the design of the world and the, and the Nautilus is always going to be historical. But there was great enthusiasm for all the designs because they are works of art. You like painting. They are actually painted, every one of mm. them. The, the, the finesse of the painting is exquisite. And also the age of the buyers surprised me because uh, Sotheby's gave me the demography and I was surprised of how many very young people. And my daughter can tell you more about this because she's on these Instagrams and all these, you know, interactive. Young people and, things. Yes. <laughs> and she gets questions from very, very young collectors. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. On Instagram, when I started that Joe Genta Heritage page, I never thought it would be... I mean, we don't have a huge amount of followers, but our followers are so engaged and there are so many questions. They correct me all of the time uh, because they know so much more than I do about my own father, which is, which is hilarious. So I, but it's fantastic because I do get to learn so much uh, in that process. And, um, and yeah, it's just they're, they're so young. And uh, they, they, they want to get involved in any way they possibly can. So it's just been such an amazing experience running that account and meeting, you know, young fans. So are there any ways that young fans get more involved in preserving the heritage of Jail Tenta? I, well, I, I reckon, I mean, we had those two amazing, amazing guys uh, who literally uh, gave us some, well, you know, they said, okay, well, we want to help on social media. So they actually invested their own time, just kind, like just je with complete generosity uh, to teach me, you know, who, who to talk to, put me in touch with the right people. It was just so, so, so nice. Give me advice on, you know, like uh, website stuff and everything. It was just so, so incredible. Um, I reckon they just, they ask a lot of questions. Some of them, their fathers worked for mom and dad, which was just so, oh, that's you know, lovely. it's so moving that I get to talk to them. And then, then we end up talking, you know, to the father and then mom talks to them as well. So it's just such a small world. And, uh, yeah, that I find that they do get involved. And then also when I, when I go out for dinner sometimes and, you know, a friend will say, oh, you know, uh, oh, she's the, the daughter of Gerald Genta. And then it's a, a guy who must be, I don't know, like 26, 27, would never expect that kind of reaction just starts going a bit crazy. And I just never, I, w I would never, ever expect that. And it's just, it's just amazing. And they know more than the Royal Oak and the Nautilus. I mean, they really know the whole story which is fascinating to me. Oh, that, that totally, I mean, that totally resonates for me. I, I mean, one of the reasons we kind of started this independent thinking show was very much the independent creators always bring part of their soul and spirit into what they make. And that really does connect across, you know, generations. Absolutely. So it's very, yeah, it's, it's great to see the kids are engaged with the right kind of, watches that, that that pleases me no end yeah. um i have to say i'm a big fan of your instagram page because i like the because i like that you put the record straight you know there's we don't need to go through some of the recent you know claims of <laughs> other brands we don't need to go there but i like that you actually do put forward the authorized version of truth which is really important i think and one of the things i'm always interested in and Certainly, I, I think knowledge, particularly knowledge about independent watchmakers and creators, is a very elusive thing, particularly when it's online. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I came through, you know, my own enthusiasm for independent makers started on, you know, watch forums like Purist Pro, for example, and there's a, a few others, which were really, once again, passionate collectors putting their own knowledge online. The problem with a lot of online knowledge, it disappears very quickly particularly in this current, you know, news-obsessed watch media, always need to put a new article on the front page kind of, you know, constant content generation. 
So I'm always, you know, that's why I really like books. You know, I'm sitting here looking at my Gerald Genta half of myself thing because I think books are in some ways a repository of knowledge and time, mm. you know, and that's why one of my questions for the Heritage Association would be, you know, would you have plans to kind of pr- put that knowledge, collate a catalogue raisonné or something, you know, to have that knowledge enshrined somewhere so that future generations of young kids do that? I think we will, but finally going back to what you say, but in a different way, the reason why I did NFTs with the sale mm. of the designs, which you may have thought, oh, she's trying to look trendy, which I'm not, because I know I'm not so trendy. there's young people. <laughs> but um, for us, there is a reason, because the NFT is used as a certificate of authenticity. Mm. So therefore, from what I have, I have understood, forever these designs in the cloud will be forever designed by Jargenta. And this is what I want to do, that people do not, sometimes not even being mean, but just thinking they're right, attribute to themselves certain designs or whatever. So the NFT for us in Sotheby's had a complete reason. It completed the physical design and he made that this is it, it's his forever. Which Dad would have absolutely loved because, I mean, what comes with an artist's temper uh, is also (laughs) ego, and rightly so. I mean, he was—he knew he was the best, and he wanted people to know. And I think he really suffered from uh, all these watches, you know, that he designed that performed so well, and nobody sort of saying, you know, this was designed by him. And I think he would be so glad to now, you know, have this certified. I mean, I, and considering he was such a forward-thinking man, I'm sure he would have loved the idea of NFTs as well. So that's a, it's a very po- big positive. Yes, there are so many both Genta watches and then let's call them Genta adjacent watches that it's, it's a bit hard for sometimes for the world to keep things straight. So I actually uh, availed the services of the Gerald Genta Heritage Association. Thank you for helping me out. I have a Patek Philippe Golden Ellipse, and I was able to get a definitive response, uh, perhaps from you, Alexia, that it is not a work of Gerald Genta. Um, are there any other watches that are commonly misattributed to Genta? And are there any famous watches that are not attributed to him, but should be? I think there are many, many more watches that are not attributed to him that we do not know about. Because ah, when he started, he was going around the Brassus, La Chaux-de-Fonds, Vienne, all of these factories, and he was selling for 10 Swiss francs a design. Loads of designs were sold to Piaget, loads of designs were sold to Coron. I don't think that in those days, remember, it was not recorded. And it's not their fault, but there are a lot of these watches which were produced. And the other day, the historian uh, of Audemars Piguet came to, to me here, and I have I, I dug up because I constantly find things. I dug up two little <laughs> black catalogs, and uh, and there were lots of uh, photos of watches. And we realized that next to some of them, Gerard had signed and put a date, which I had never noticed. Wow! The historians got really really excited about it, I and I, of course I allowed them to take pictures and everything else. And now we know that there are many more Audemars Piguet designs by Gerard sure. than we knew. And I think this is the case for a lot and a lot of watches that we do not. I only confirm that he's been designed by Gerargenta if I own the design, if I have the design here, because otherwise it would be too unfair. But now we have gone to the other end. Before, brands had total amnesia and could not remember who had designed their watches. Now we've got to the other end of the scope. I get all the time people telling me, did your husband design this, your husband designed that? And so now we have an overload but if I don't have the original design, I want to be fair and say, look, I don't know. Oh, I think that's wonderful. It's a wonderful service to, that you are providing to the watch industry or to the horological history. I think it's so important to 
understand yeah and connect the right way the, um, the big big one was recently was the rolex the midas that yes. everybody's been asking us on instagram as well did if dad designed the the the, the, the midas and we have no idea um I think he did. I think he mentioned it once, but I never paid much attention to it. Not having the original design, Mm. although I have something that is very, very, very similar, and I would need the people of Rolex to have a look at it. Um, It might be, but I'm not going to say for sure because that wouldn't be fair. Sure. Uh, Did he design a Rolex? No, but he always said he wished he had designed the oyster. He thought the oyster was a particularly well-designed object and he, he he says that's a watch i'm sorry i didn't design can win them all hey <laughs> now, actually one of the questions i had was do you evelyn or you alexia do you get a sort of the sixth sense when you see a watch that you might not have seen before in in the metal do you have a thing of oh this looks like the hand of gerald is there a thing that you sort of at the back of your mind you go i wonder if because that feels like a Gerald design, or was he very diverse that you couldn't really pick? No, I think there is a there is a line you can you can follow. Sense. Yes, I think there is a sense. Like again, going back to amazing artist Picasso. Yes, there is the Epoque Bleu, which is completely different from. Uh, sure. But yet, there is a sort of, and maybe if you've lived with a person, you get the mm. perception. You can't say. But you think it might be? That's what I'm getting at. Do yes, for, that's why I said I think yeah. Do you have a feel for that? Yeah, sounds like yes. Yeah, it's fantastic, lovely, interesting. And are there any gentle watches that you think haven't gotten as much attention as they they should have, and perhaps will get more attention in the near future? If we're uh, buying up things while prices are favorable, where should we be putting our money? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I don't know. If you can find some, if you can find um, a Jeffica, as we talked before, I would think that is certainly something that is going to go up. And every every complication, I still think that his um, his perpetual calendars are going to go up because they are exceptionally beautiful and very, very different from any perpetual calendar. But that's just hmm. my view. Out of curiosity, how can we get them serviced? Uh, so one of the, the slightly scary things about these very complex watches is that at some point for them to live on, they may need some maintenance. Uh, what do you recommend people do? I think you can try to go to Bulgaria and ask them if they can help you. Mm-hmm. If they can't, then maybe they might be able to point you to... You have also some independent uh, watchmakers who are incredibly um, clever at what they do. I mean, these guys are geniuses, and they they often are very young. So Mm -hmm. it takes a bit of research, but it can be done. Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Um, Bulgari had agreed that they could service my biretros. I'd asked them about that one, but there are just so many complex models out there. I was just wondering more in general. So, So thank you. Actually, and now with with the brand currently living with Bulgari, does Bul- do, do Bulgari approach you, or do you get any sort of sense or sway about, or do you know what they're planning to do, or where they want to take the brand into the future? I I'm not sure. I think it would be inappropriate for me to reply to that question. I think that question would have to be asked. I have a lot of respect for Bulgari, sure. but I think that question should be asked directly to them rather than to me. Hmm. But I. But me, the only thing I can say as as the keeper of Jargenta is that <clears throat> I hope some of these incredible, never-seen designs see the light of day. That would be to me a great joy to hold them physically in my hand as watches and not as designs. Mm, beautiful. Interesting. And I believe that you can tell the two eras of watches apart by the Gs in the name, right? One has a lowercase and one has a capital G. Is there a reason the logo changed? No, I can't tell you. That was that was after our time. Remember, so um, okay. these are decisions that were made in the in the new entity. So I cannot answer that. <laughs> Fair enough. That makes that makes sense. So uh, Gerald Genta was always ahead of the curve and really a person that was very forward thinking. What sort of watches do you think he'd be promoting and designing today in 2022 if he were still alive? I think he would be wanting to get rid of the huge watches 
I don't think he liked the way the market was going, which was going bigger and bigger and bigger for him. Because as I told you, first of all, when he made a new watch, he'd wear it to see if it would go with the shirt. To him, a watch had to be worn on the wrist. And he felt like we were ending up, he used to say, with the village clock being put on your wrist because they were getting bigger <laughs> and bigger and bigger. And he said, a watch is a piece of beauty and making it huge is not going to uh, make it any more beautiful. So I think he would be asking to go back to normal size, beautiful proportions, nothing too shocking. Um, beauty must last, and to last, it must be shocking. Mm. You're right, and it does explain why his designs have are timeless in a sense, because you're right, because they're so organic and well thought out and, yeah, integrated sort of conceptually that you're right, that, you know, that you can't date a Gerald Genta piece just by looking at it in your hand because it could be in any decade. It was, and it could be future-facing future in any decade, which is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. So you started the, as we sort of start to, to wrap up, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, you know, you started the Ger Gerald Genta Heritage Association with a very noble goal, which... You know, you clearly you know, to to a to sort of promote Gerald's name and work and make sure that he does get the recognition in the pantheon of people who have influenced the watchmaking industry or you know the, the horological industry in some ways. Uh, and then you're also there to support the up and coming watch designers. What are you sort of? Could you tell us a little bit of sort of the the future, the next year or two or three of where do you see the Heritage Association going? Um, well, as, we I don't know it? if you've seen, but on the board of the Jargenta Heritage, we have a lot of very um, knowledgeable um, CEOs or important people of the watchmaking world. Of course, we were slowed down by COVID for everything. Mm, uh, of course. You know, we, we started like a few months before COVID hit, so that was it. Oh, no. Uh, oh, it. And um, once um, the last the last Sotheby's action has been uh, done, we will meet as a group and I think we will start thinking of how to identify designers, not uh, what, not not people who make movements because we think that movements are amazing and they don't need. We need to identify designers and we will all put our head together and then we have the idea of creating a Jargenta prize which will give some money oh, to fam. the designer, but also to give him exposure. And uh, this, this is the plan. That's a wonderful goal. That's a very noble goal. I mean, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think this would be something that Gerald himself would be th thoroughly approve of, you know, fostering the next generation, you know, of talent and giving yeah. them the opportunity to flourish. That's a wonderful thing. I look forward to seeing the winners. It'll be fun to see who this unearths. Always... We'll do our best. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a huge look. It's been wonderful to 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 hear the stories and you know to have this opportunity to talk with you um, about both about you, your role in the success and the ongoing success of Gerald Genter and his story. It has been a yeah privilege and a pleasure to really speak with you and Alexia. So thank you very much. It's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's been a joy. Thank you. It was Thank lovely. Bye-bye. is by the community for the community. We would love you to join the crew via our group chat on Slack. Email us at contact at fifthwrist.com and join the movement.